Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. It was a rough road. I just, I realized one day that I I was worth more than, because I just had no self-worth. I felt alone in the world. I felt like the, the world was just a, a, an awful place with awful people that were mean and that there was just no good in the world. I thought that I was a kind of person because I've always had this huge heart and, you know, I don't kill bugs, you know, and I, I've always just loved so genuinely and completely. And I just felt really alone because I had never seen anybody else be like that. I've never, I had never seen anybody else just have the same kind of, for example, you know, when you love somebody, your natural instinct is to want to protect them from harm. And I've never seen anybody else have that instinct towards me at least. And so, yeah, I just, I hated the world and I just kind of wanted to die. And I ended up meeting somebody who was really kind of incredible, you know, that helped me out of a lot of it, but because they were the first person ever in my life that was consistent and just was, sorry, go ahead. And is, is that person in your life still? He died of cancer. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way Akasa works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. COVID has been really hard on all of us, but some good things did come out of it. And for me, one of those things was meeting Tina Festa. I was on a CASA Zoom, kind of like a CASA meetup, and... And there she was, her beautiful face on one of the Hollywood squares, saying that she was a new CASA and that she was also a former foster youth who spent most of her childhood in foster care. And she was also a teen mom. And I thought, oh, wow, this is a really important point of view to hear. And I immediately reached out to her and I said, will you talk to me? Will you talk to me? Will you talk to me? And she said, yes. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Tina Festa. Hi, hi, Tina. Hello. Hello. Hi. So thanks so much for doing this. And I, I want to know everything about you because just in our brief conversation together, you're just an astounding person. So <laughs> who are you? Where are you from? How were you raised? Um, well, geez, where do I start? That's a, that's a big question or a lot of them. I'm from Arizona and I moved to California about seven years ago. So how were you born? What was your family like? What, what was the situation at home? My biological mother is addicted to alcohol and meth, and my biological father is addicted to meth. And um, I was pretty quickly after I was born 
sent to live with my grandmother because there um, was like a lot of abuse and neglect and stuff like that from my bio parents. And then um, when I moved in with my my grandmother, I mean, she was also an addict uh, to pain pills. And I lived with her until I was about 10 and that was pretty normal. And then, well, kind of, we moved around like a ton, but uh, it was the most normal part of my childhood. Right. But uh, you felt safe with her, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I felt safe. If you look back on it now, you see she was addicted to uh, to pills. but Yeah. So I got really used to chaos in my childhood. I, I, mean, I don't think I ever went to a school in my in elementary school longer than like maybe three or four months. I, I moved around a lot. So um, there was a lot of negatives to it. And there there was um, a lot of, of issues in, in the home, you know, but in comparison, when I when I think back to my entire life, um, to the other things that I've been through, I think that that was probably the safest I felt as a child. She committed suicide when I was 10. And I, I had a whole lot of uh, like PTSD and stuff like that after that, because I was like I was there when it happened and she ended up giving herself like and she overdosed on like pain pills, like unintentionally. And the thing you don't think about when you do that is that in each of those pain pills, when you're taking like Vicodin, there's 500 milligrams of uh, Tylenol in each of them. Right. So all of the Tylenol um, like together somehow ended up um, doing like something that made her, her, um, Oh God, what's it called? Like an aneurysm, except for, uh, it was you want the biggest vein in our body is like, um, the size of like a hose and, um, whatever she did, I guess, managed to somehow rupture that or something like that. I don't remember the details exactly, but I know she like came out of her bedroom and she was like just bleeding all over the place. It was crazy. I'm sorry if I sh- shouldn't talk about this. No, no, <laughs> no. I, oh. This is no. This is this is what what I what I, I need to hear. So so you were there with her when? Yeah, me and my my little cousins were, and um, because of the fact. Sorry about my my dogs. Um, <laughs> because of the fact that um, it was. Uh, they were like hoarders, you know, they, they had all kinds of stuff. You couldn't even see the floor. Um, my aunt who also lived with us, she was probably, I don't know, 20 or twenties or thirties. Her, her kids lived with us too. Um, she was like super concerned that if the police came, uh, while the house was in that state that, sorry, the dogs, you hear the dogs. Um, no, that that's the, okay. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Yeah. She was super concerned that if the police came at that time, that, um, they would see the, the condition of the house and then CPS would end up taking us. So there was a, a pretty long time between the time that like she ended up having that happen. And, um, when the actually police were called and came. So after that, I started having like a lot of, um, psychological issues, flashbacks and stuff like that. And so I, um, I, I don't know, I had a lot of, I don't know why I'm telling you this. <laughs> I guess you asked me about my, my childhood. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds pretty rough. You were 10 years old. Yeah. And yeah. you watched your grandmother kill herself in, in front of your eyes. Yeah. I mean, it, it that sounds more uh, dramatic, I guess, than it really, I mean, it was dramatic, but um, we, we didn't know as, as kids at the time that she like, had done it intentionally or that um and she did she didn't act like hurt or anything she just kind of came out 
with a smile on her face and just kind of fell. So, but anyway, so fast forward, um, a, I don't know, maybe like a month or so. And my aunt who I was living with sent me to live with my uncle and him and his wife were pretty awful because of the stigma that my, my biological parents have. Like I've always lived in their shadow because throughout, throughout my life as a child, I never had any real power to protect myself and like moving forward. Like it, it really started there with my uncle because his wife would just verbally abuse me because she hated my mother. Then when I was like 12, I was sent to live with my father who I had last seen when I was like four and I wanted nothing to do with them. They like surprised me one day. I came home from school. My stuff was packed and I was sent to live there and uh, he was pretty awful too. And then um, I'm trying to, say this quickly. Um, no, take your time, Tina. Take, take your time. <laughs> the, the reason why I want to, I want to include all of this is because it, it really, it, it all matters in the big scheme of why I became who I became and get a chance to tell my story. I feel like I, I want to tell it, <laughs> but um, because we had never had a, a relationship before and didn't really know each other. And because he was also a drug addict, he was, um, I don't know, kind of like creepily sexual towards me, you know? So I ended up running away from there. And at this time, like I said, I was 12. And I ended up going back to live with my aunt, who I had like originally been with. And uh, her boyfriend at the time, or her husband, I think maybe they were married, ended up, and I, I was 13 now, ended up getting me pregnant. And so... At this time, I mean, in amongst all of this crap is just like chaos. My family is pure chaos. It's just basically living in filth. I mean, at one point I was living in a trailer that had uh, just big old holes in the floor. You could look down and see the dirt, you know. Um, that's the kind of environment that just was normal to me. Even as an adult, like I don't – messes don't register in my head when I see them, you know, because like, I'm just so – I was programmed as a child to be in that. So that's the thing I struggle with. Right. So you were 13, you were 13 and you, you say that he ended up getting you pregnant. Well, um, he, um, got me drunk one night and I wouldn't go as far as to say he flat out raped me, you know, at the, at the time I felt like I was, you know, consenting, but in retrospect, he was a 40 year old man and I was 13, you know, so, uh, I was taken advantage of for sure. Um, he ended up going to prison for something totally unrelated, like a couple weeks after that. So yeah, he's, he's never been in my, my daughter's life at all, but I got pregnant. I was still living with my aunt at the time and she was freaking crazy. Like the whole reason why her husband went to jail was because she, like, she's a pill addict and she would basically hold his kids over his head if she, if he didn't go get her some sort of, um, money or whatever for drugs. And so I was living in that environment and I just, I didn't feel safe at all. I tried like several times throughout my life to get in touch with CPS to get help and get out of my situation, but they never listened to me or helped me, you know? And so. Right. So nobody helped you, even though you asked for help repeatedly. Yeah. Several times. I, and I know that the school had called CPS a couple of times and, um, they just, nothing ever came of it, you know? And there was always honestly consequences for me because of the fact that it ended up being found out that I was the one that 
like they wouldn't come and say that, oh, it was a random um, reporter or whatever. They would literally like tell on me that I was the one that, that asked for help. And so, so I kind of gave up on trying to, to escape my situation throughout my childhood. But once I got pregnant, I realized that I had to do something. I guess it was right after she was born. She was like a couple weeks old. I contacted them again. And this time they listened because I had a newborn. And so they came and they gave me the options to either just have her go. And almost as a second thought, they asked me if I wanted to go with her, you know? Right. You mean have her go like into care? To to foster care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I just wanted to get her out of the situation that I was in, you know, because I had no ability to, to, to fend for myself, even let alone a child. And how did you have your baby? Did you have your baby at home or in the hospital? Or uh, in the hospital. In the hospital. Um, yeah, she was. She was big baby. <laughs> big baby, huh? Yeah. yeah. She was like almost uh, nine pounds or something. Did and what's say? her name? Can you say? Um, it's Halen. Halen. Mm-hmm. So it means special in German. Mm-hmm. All right. Then what? So what happened? You then they took you both into care as an yes. afterthought. They asked you. Yeah. So we ended up going to um, a, a place called Payson, which was about, um, I don't know, an hour and a half away from where I was living, which was Mesa, Arizona. And um, we were put with this this foster home. And in the beginning of being there, it, it seemed really amazing, you know. And I, uh, I was dealing with all, like I said, the PTSD and everything like that that I had had from my childhood. And um, trying to process that. And I ended up agreeing to, to let my, my daughter be adopted because, you know, again, I wasn't even able to have rights over her because I was a ward of the state because at that, at that time there, there were no, uh, people left to have any type of guardianship or anything like that over me. So I was technically a ward of the state. And so they adopted her and they were a, a lovely, uh, couple, um, lesbian couple that, uh, one of them was an amb- like a, a paramedic, and then um, oh gosh, I can't remember what the other the other lady did. And do they still have you, baby? They do, they do. Um, but there's a whole complication with that too, because later on down the road they decided they didn't want her anymore. But I guess I'll get into that. But yeah, so you put her up for adoption, and then and then what happened to you? Well, I I, I continued to be in foster care, and I guess that's the the point of this whole whole thing is the foster care part, but. So I guess it's just important for, for people to understand that these kids, when they come into foster care, are coming from a lot of times unimaginable backgrounds. You know, just first of all, just most likely the average person wouldn't even be able to fathom the, the kind of things that end up putting kids in the system because they don't, despite popular belief, like they do not just take your kids, you know, like they have to have a reason to. So usually by the time a kid ends up in the system, it's they've been through quite a lot. And I, I think you're right. I think people do need to know that because they have no idea what, right. what happens to these kids and why they end up in care. And I think hearing your story is really important. So so thank you again. So you mentioned when we were talking on the phone that you have CPTSD, not just PTSD. So, what, so what's the difference? Can you explain that for me? Absolutely. Yeah. So I have a thing called CPTSD or complex post-traumatic stress disorder. The difference between uh, CPTSD and PTSD is that um, PTSD is caused by like maybe a single exposure to an event. Like um, maybe you get into a car accident and you almost die or you go to war and you 
it can be over a couple of months or whatever, um, but it's a single event that you experienced. Um, it can be from maybe getting sexually assaulted. CPTSD is from having years and years of exposure to, to traumatic events or to PTSD causing events. And the thing is, is the thing that's different about CPTSD, and I, I think that there's a pretty good likelihood of a lot of the children in the, in the system having it, is that it can be caused by constant exposure to uncertain terms, like where am I going to sleep tonight? How am I going to eat tonight? Um, uh, who's who's going to hit right, me? Right. Who's, who's mm-hmm. going to The uncertainty yeah. of just in years of that, and and never really having any real feeling of safety or um, security, it, it has serious effects. And so, um, and I, I really would be willing to bet that the majority of kids in the system have some form of it. And it has all kinds of long-term effects. It's it's harder to treat than PTSD is, and it it affects your life a lot. Yeah, I'm sure it affects not only emotional development but but brain development. Mm-hmm. Yep. As they've proven, that's what happens with 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 childhood trauma. Yep. That it it truly debilitating on many oh, yeah. many levels. Oh yeah. I mean, I I have severe like flashback nightmares um, where it's not like a regular nightmare. You're you're reliving some sort of event, and then you you uh, it's very real, and then you kind of wake up and you have the sweating and everything. I have what is more um, kind of unique to CPTSD is emotional flashbacks. So just like a person who was in the the war will get triggered by a, a gun sound or like a you know firework and they'll have a flashback. A person with CPTSD will say that that you get into like a, a a bit of an argument with you know your person you're in a relationship with, or it could even be something that really just doesn't even seem like it should trigger anybody at all for you know any reason. And what it does is your brain goes into a flashback to the same emotional state that you were in at a time when you were younger, that something happened traumatic that, that right. And more vulnerable. Yeah. Right. So, and you, you literally go into the emotional state of, you know, a six year old who was being, you know, emotionally abused and you, you flash back to that and it is debilitating. And that's another thing too, is that CPTSD people usually are very highly sensitive to, to other people's emotions and the way they act. And we're always picking up on little cues. It's very similar to borderline personality disorder from mm-hmm. what I've picked up. I don't know if you know anything mm-hmm. about that. I do, you know, um, actually my mom is a psychotherapist. So oh, okay. yeah. And they, so when you were talking about the work, I'm like, ah, my mom's going to like this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it's very, it's not very well known. I think that, um, I don't even think it's in the DSM five yet. Um, CPTSD, but I know that it's there- hard to say, I, I know that <laughs> CPTSD. Yeah. It's complex, po- uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I know that, right. uh, other things a lot of times get misdiagnosed as, you know, other things that are probably CPTSD get misdiagnosed as um, borderline or get misdiagnosed as other things, you know, which all have a stigma that people will have to, to deal with and live with, which is another unfortunate thing and reason why I wanted to become mm-hmm. a therapist. But um, I think that that's another really important thing to keep in mind when you're interacting with, with children is that it's called being trauma informed, you know, and just yes. as I think, I think we're trained about that as causes, but um just remembering that they have the way that they interact with the world or experience the world is not going to be the way that you do. And just 
to try to be sensitive to that. Like if they seem like they're overreacting to, to something that you've done, maybe you roll your eyes and they just become hysterical. It's most likely because of the fact that at some point in their childhood, somebody rolled their eyes at them during a time that was extremely emotionally impactful. Maybe they were, that's, they rolled their eyes as they were leaving, you know, or whatever. All right. So I'm just going to keep on pressing you, right? So you're now in foster care. Did you go from home to home? Did you find a home you liked? Well, I was, um, I stayed with the same people that I was originally put with for a couple of years and they were going to adopt me. But the, the woman that like the, 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 the woman, because it was a, a, a couple, um, she was, I don't want to say crazy, but just, I mean, first of all, mean, but also just kind of crazy. Like she, and I had uh, other foster siblings come in and out and have the same experience as I did, but she would just come to believe that you, you did something and even though you didn't do it and then she would punish you for it, you know? And then, um, I don't know. It was just really as a child who had just come from the background that I had, it was really hard on me mentally because I was always, uh, kind of a really good kid, or at least I tried to be. I was a straight A student and I, um, I just wanted acceptance and love, you know? So like I was, I behaved and, um, right. So you tried to be perfect so that right. you could just be safe. Right. Because at, at that point as, as a, as a 13, 14, 15 year old, um, the only thing I really wanted because it was the only thing I never really had was a family and love and just safety and security and it was at this time that you also felt bad about yourself so bad that you wanted to harm yourself, right? Right. So that's that's kind of what I was about to get into is that um, I, they were supposed to adopt me and then ended up telling me that they didn't they didn't want to and that um, the reason why I ended up trying to to commit suicide was because of the fact that I one was dealing with the PTSD from from my childhood. Two, that the therapists and counselors uh, that were available to me as a child in foster care were just crap. A big problem that I that I personally um, experienced with the the couple of different um, counselors or therapists that I was introduced to or that I was sent to was that they just seemed to I don't know I seemed I felt like an alien to them. You know, they just would look at me and just it seemed like they just had no frame of reference for the things that I had like experienced. And they just, I don't know, even as you know, I was a teenager, I just felt I didn't want to talk to them because they, first of all, they just acted like they weren't really that interested in what I had to say. But that was a common theme as, as a foster kid is that nobody like really cared about you. You know, like, it's like, you are the, the kid that doesn't matter. You don't have, like, I think a lot of, a lot comes from a parent's protection, you know, and like the fact that there's a parent that cares about you as a child, because your opinion really has no value, you know, to, to society as a child, you know? And, uh, so they knew that there's, there's nobody that's going to reprimand them if they don't provide you ad adequate care, you know? And I think a lot of people have biases anyway about, um, the likelihood of a, of a kid really, becoming anything good when they've had that kind of background. So I think that they just didn't even try to do their job, really. So you felt that they gave up on you before they even started. Right, basically. And that was a, a common theme across the board with people that I would interact with. It just always felt that way. And I, I know that um, other people that I, I know that have been in the system always felt that way, too. I have cousins, the cousins that lived with me originally, they ended up in the system, too. And 
it really affected them bad, you know, and they, they all had the same experience. So you tried to kill yourself because you felt so bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, so sorry. I know it's a weird place to laugh. Um, I laugh when I'm nervous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I um, do too, actually. I think a lot of people do. Yeah. I think that, um, I really appreciate what you're doing right now. I know it's super uncomfortable, but I got to tell you again, I think it's really important. Well, thank you. I, I think so too. I think that so the whole reason why I wanted to to be a casa was because, and I don't think I don't think people hear these stories or or it's not even a thought, you know. Like, and I think a lot of what people think about when they think of foster kids are people in the system at all, you know. It's a temporary thing. It's not my problem. It's um, and and also they think about their story from the time that they became a foster kid and not their whole story. And I think it's really important to remember that these kids are humans with whole lives, you know, and just everything that they live through on a daily basis is affecting them. But, okay. So yes, I, um, I developed an eating disorder. Um, uh, I would, I was anorexic, but then when I would like, when I had to eat, I, I was, um, I would throw it up and it got so bad that I was having like fainting spells and, um, and that was all triggered by, I don't know, I think just an, maybe an imbalance of or inability to regulate my my thoughts and emotions as a hormonal kid with a troubled past. But I was dealing with that. And then also it had started becoming very clear that the people who I was under the impression wanted to adopt me and I called up my parents, you know, I called up my mom and dad at this point, even though I'd only been there for like a year or so, it was becoming more and more clear that they didn't want that. And I just was feeling very um, unwelcome there. And it just kind of made something snap in me. I think it's just a mixture of the two things. And so I, I tried to commit suicide. I was 15 and um, I, I had no frame of reference for like how, you know, you are supposed to do that. And plus as a foster kid, they keep like dangerous things away from you. Like medicines are locked up and guns are locked up and stuff like that. But there was aspirin. That was the thing that was available. So I, I took, I don't know, 300 aspirin pills or something. It was an insane amount. And, uh, that my hearing is still messed up from that actually um, because I didn't know that uh, the way that aspirin, I, I think I said that doesn't matter. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I'd like to hear this uh, actually, okay. unless you don't want to say it. No, I don't, I don't mind talking about it, but the way that aspirin um, kills a person is not, I, you know, you see the movies where people kill themselves with pills and it's like, oh, you know, I take the pills 20 minutes later, I'm dead. You know, I fall asleep or whatever. That's what I was expecting to happen. Um, that is not how aspirin takes you out. Aspirin is probably the absolute worst thing you could ever choose to try to kill yourself with. It basically, you know, cause aspirin's a blood thinner and then it basically just turns your organs to mush, you know, but when I took the pills, I, I took the pills and then I had like gotten to the bathtub and I was just, you know, thinking, okay, I'm going to fade away, but didn't happen. Uh, a couple hours go by school starts the next day or like school's about to start the next day. And, uh, like, I'm not even really feeling any symptoms yet at this point. Um, but I was acting weird, you know, I was acting weird, I guess, to my, my friends. And one of them caught on to this because we like had talked on the phone and my foster parents hated him, you know? So he, ended up having to call like another one of my friends so that they could call my foster parents and tell them like something's wrong with her. You need to figure out what it is. And, um, I think because I was probably like maybe hinting at like what I had done or whatever, because it's a big thing to process. And also I don't know that I, I don't know. I don't know if I really wanted to die or uh, why I did it. 
but you probably didn't um, want to die. You just wanted right. to end whatever, whatever pain you yeah. felt. Right. And so, um, it's several hours later at this point and, uh, Deb, the Deb is the, the foster parent, the, the, the mother or whatever. Um, she ended up going into the bathroom and finding the, the empty pill bottle. And she thought that I was trying to get attention or like, um, she was, she was just mad, you know? And, um, she ended up just out of anger, taking me to the hospital. Cause she wanted to like prove a point that like, there was nothing wrong with me, even though I didn't say there was anything wrong with me. You know, she just, my foster dad, who was a, a much nicer guy was very concerned about if I was going to be okay. And plus on top of the fact that I had taken all that aspirin, I hadn't eaten in days, you know, like in a long time. So I had nothing in my stomach with it. And so um, by the time I got to the hospital, uh, they ended up telling me that it was too late for them to pump my stomach. It had been too long at this point. And they ended up air vacuuming me to a different hospital, like a children's hospital. And I was in there for a couple of weeks and uh, the doctors couldn't do anything. They just gave me fluids and just kind of waited to see if I was going to die or not. <sighs> What's crazy is that it, it took away my hearing for a couple of weeks. Like all I could hear was just ringing. I guess after this is when my, my experience in foster care really got worse because, and I guess, I guess this is important too, because I just, I think back on all of these things and just imagine another kid going through it, you know? And I mean, I don't think there's any possible better motivation to want to do something to help a kid, you know, than, than knowing this, but. I think so too. I, I do, Tina. I think so too. When, so when I was in the hospital, nobody came to visit me. Like I was, I was in there by myself for a couple of weeks and not a single person like came to, not a phone call, like nothing. And, um, did your friends know where you were? No, my friends didn't. My friends, right. so it, it, it would only have been my foster parents or my caseworker or just Right. And something. they didn't come. The, the foster parents didn't come. They didn't no, call you. Nothing. Even the dad. Nothing. They were, they were just mad. They were just mad at me for what I did. And so when I finally got released from there, I went to a behavioral watch facility for like, I don't know, a couple of weeks or whatever. And then, uh, when I got released from there, that was crap too, man. The places that they send kids to for, for mental help, uh, are awful. Like they just essentially just give you some sort of diagno diagnosis and just throw pills at you and don't try to give you any type of therapy or because I think it's maybe they don't have the resources. I don't know, but it's really a theme is that it's probably not financially beneficial to, to really put that much time into trying to care for a foster kid because you are seeing several of them. It's probably for not very much money and it just makes more sense to be like, okay, here's some pills, go about your day instead of trying to tackle whatever it is they're really going through. But when I went back to foster care um, or back to their house, they were so mad at me. They told me they didn't want to adopt me anymore. They told me um, that, I don't know, they took it personally for some reason. Like you, you know? had done it against them to, right, to right. make them unhappy as opposed exactly. to a cry for help on your part. Right. And so at that point, I just, I, I couldn't take it anymore. I was having, oh, it, the behavioral place had put me on these meds and they were making me crazy. Like they were making me like, just think about dying 24 seven. And I guess that that's actually pretty common for, uh, you know, you hear in like the, the commercials, uh, children, teens and young adult become suicidal, blah, blah. Well, um, that is what was happening to me. It was, oh my God, it was crazy. Like you, it's all I could think of 24 seven. I tried to like, um, 
hang myself in the school bathroom, you know, and I tried talking to my foster parents about it and telling them like, I, I don't what I can't take this anymore. It's going to end up like I'm going to end up dying or something, you know, because I didn't want to die. It was more of just an obsessive thought. And they basically threatened me if I didn't, you know, take it and everything like that. And I tried talking to my doctor. My doctor just told me I needed to take it longer. And um, that just kind of was my breaking point. And I was talking to a friend, the friend that had realized something was wrong with me that the day I tried to kill myself. And he said something to me that like just changed my my life, you know, because he was like, you don't you don't have to be there. You know, you, you are in control of your life. And it just was revolutionary. I, I literally, the next morning I ran away <laughs> because it was awful in there. And I was on the run for two weeks before I got caught. How did you get caught? I think something stupid, like I was jaywalking and they, they tried to run my name realized I was a minor. My, they took me to my caseworker who was devil. She actually ended up getting fired. I found out because she was um, scandalous, but um, she took me to this, this group home in like Casa Grande, which is basically just the desert. And um, those places are awful. And that's another thing that I think that is important for people to know that people just don't have any reason to know is that there are not enough foster parents for all the foster kids that there are, or the, all the, the kids in the dependency system that need a placement. So a lot of these kids get put into these these shelters. And the one I was put into was a boy and girl shelter. And so it's a group of like, I don't know, 30 people, 30 kids with maybe like one adult or two adults. That It's kind of like a jail is basically what it's like, except for with less supervision. And essentially, uh, there's like a, a living room with bedrooms on one side and bedrooms on the other side. The boys were in the bedrooms on one side and the girls were in the bedroom on the other side. But there's nothing blocking in between. And uh at night when we would like fall asleep, the boys would like sneak around because like the casework or the, the supervisor, adults, whatever, would fall asleep. And the boys would like come in and like try to like, like sexually assault us. And um, it was it was miserable, you know, and the, the people that were taking care of us were very mean and just treated us like we were prisoners who had done something wrong that they were there to punish for some reason. So I ended up after the second night of being there and having another like a, a, I woke up and there was like a boy on top of me, like trying to like, you know, he was, he was like 17. He wasn't even like a young boy and he was pretty big. After that, I just, I was triggered because I had dealt with a lot of abuse as a, as a child, you know, sexually. And I, um, I don't know, it, it just, it triggered me in a way that I just couldn't do it anymore. So I ended up running away from there and I was on the run until I was 18. I stayed on the run after that. So that's my, my, um, my story. <laughs> right. Right. So when you say on the run, you just, you were homeless. You went from mm -hmm. friend to friend, you couch surfed. What, what did you do? I stayed with a friend for a while. I ended up posting an ad and becoming a, like a nanny. And uh, I was a living nanny for a while. I ended up uh, running a daycare for somebody. And obviously they, they had no idea you were on the run. They no were, idea. No idea. No idea um, you were in hiding. They didn't even know how old I was. And what's crazy is that even to this day, if you um, look up my name, there is, it'll, you'll see missing person. Like that's the first thing that pops up because I was on the, the Na national endangered ch uh, children's list. Like there was one day I went to uh, Walmart and my picture was on the wall with all the other missing people. Wow. Yeah. You can still see it. The picture's still up online. If you, uh, which freaks people out when they try to look me up. They look me up and they're like, are you, are you, uh, how old are you? Are you 
on the run are you missing because they never like took it down for some reason but um so what happened then you were you're 18 and then did you know that now you're 18 you can do what you want or or did you well yeah I so essentially in the first like year or so after I had run away I ended up developing an addiction to um opiates like pain pills and stuff like that and then um, I ended up developing an addiction to heroin and that kind of ravaged my life for a few years. And I, I mean, I got arrested for shoplifting a sandwich and like in my, my mugshot picture, I looked bad, you know, I'm, and I was only barely 18, you know, I was a baby and I, I just was alone, you know, in, in the world. I didn't have anybody. I didn't have parents. I didn't have family. So I just was trying to stay alive. And the problem is, is after you've come from that kind of background, we go towards what's familiar. And what was familiar to me was was abuse and, and was, you know, not the right kind of environment. And so I kept perpetuating the same abuse that I endured as a child by by getting with these abusive boyfriends, you know. And uh, I got clean four years ago, four years ago now. And um, I don't know why... I'm just nervous. I don't know why that I knew that off the top of my head. I don't know why I <laughs> said the wrong number. Um, and you put yourself through school. How, how did, how are yeah, you in school? I'm doing I mean, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, how, how did you get to all that? Well, that's the thing is that, uh, it was a rough road. I just, I realized one day that I, I was worth more than, cause I just had no self-worth. I felt alone in the world. I felt like the, the world was just a, a, an awful place with awful people that were mean and that there was just no good in the world. I thought that I was a kind of person because I've always had this huge heart and, you know, I don't kill bugs, you know, and I, I've always just loved so genuinely and completely. And I just felt really alone because I had never seen anybody else be like that. I've never, I had never seen anybody else just have the same kind of, for example, you know, when you love somebody, your natural instinct is to want to protect them from harm. And I've never seen anybody else have that instinct towards me at least. And so, yeah, I just, I hated the world and I just kind of wanted to die. And I ended up meeting somebody who was really kind of incredible, you know, that helped me out of a lot of it, but because they were the first person ever in my life that was consistent and just was, sorry, go ahead. And is is that person in your life still? He died of cancer. What's crazy is that the way I met him was that this was after I was 18, I believe. And I was on drugs at the time. And my biological mother had gotten in contact with me. I had been living with like some, uh, some, oh, I'm just, I'm just going to say it. He was like a pimp, you know, and a couple of his like girls that he, you know, and, you know, I wasn't 18 at the time. I wasn't yet. And I obviously wasn't willing to do that. And they were basically, the girls were getting mad that I wasn't doing that. And they were, you know, and so I finally was like, I got to go. So I left there and I didn't have anywhere to go. So I got in contact with my biological mother of all people. And she invited me to come stay where she was. Well, she had some sort of mental breakdown that night and was trying to get me removed from the house. And her boyfriend or, you know, the guy that she was with stood up for me that night, you know, and he was like, she's not, I'm not going to throw her out. What are you talking about? And that was the first time in my life anybody had ever done that. Anybody had ever just like, not like normally any other circumstance, it would have just been like the easiest thing 
you know, it's easier to just have her go and not have to deal with the conflict with the, the mother, you know, but it, he protected me from her, you know, and that meant so much to me because I just never had it happen. I was already packing my stuff up and I just was so kind of defeated at this time by the world that I didn't even think twice about it. It's just like, oh, this is normal. This is a normal behavior to want to hurt your child for no reason. But after that, he, I don't know, he just was genuine. He used to be a history teacher and he kind of became almost like a father to me. He was the kind of person that uh, would just sit and talk about, you know, all the things he knew for like ever. And normally other people would just get so sick of hearing him talk, you know, because he just would, he had bad hearing. So he just would go on forever about history and music and everything. And everybody else just was like, <laughs> could only take him in small doses, but I just, I soaked it up, you know, but he was the first person that ever treated me like a human being. You know, he didn't try to have sex with me, which was another really important thing to me because my interactions with men up until that point had always been, they wanted something sexual from you, you know? Yeah. Basically from birth almost, but, um, but he didn't do that. How did you end up being a CASA? How'd you hear about CASA? Um, so I ended up becoming a CASA, because so after all of this, after I got, you know, my life together and I got into school and I um, started going to therapy and it was, you know, it was a rough road. But uh, I realized that I I wanted to, to help somehow. That's that's actually why I started going to school, because I'm becoming a therapist for, you know, I want to work with kids specifically in the dependency system as much as I can. I have concentration in child and adolescent development and doing really good there. I've got a, I'm on the Dean's list and the principal's list. So that's nice. Nice. Um, and I was looking for volunteer opportunities because COVID had just happened and I wasn't working at the time. I was just kind of doing my schooling. So I had extra, extra time. And so I came across this, the, the CASA thing. And I was just like, that's perfect. Kind of encompassed everything that made me want to be a therapist was just knowing that these kids do not have a voice. they If, if somebody doesn't step in and, and stand up for them or like make sure that they're getting what they need, they won't, you know, they will fall in between the cracks. They will be forgotten. They will like be another statistic because, and that's the thing that like really is just crap is that they're not a statistic. Yeah. It's a sad story. It's, Oh, you know, another kid lost to this or lost to that. It's like, that was a human that had a whole life that whatever happened because they didn't have anybody to protect them or stand up for them or care about them. So that's why I became a CASA. And and how about your kids? Who are you? Because you have more than one, which is really unusual. And you're a new CASA. You you just came on board. Yes. I finished my training a couple, uh, a couple of months ago. I ended up getting the case that I got because of the fact that I know sign language. And they had been waiting for quite a long time for a CASA that, that knew sign because the both the parents are deaf and... Uh, the kids, well, they actually aren't deaf. One of them is hard of hearing, but um, they had been raised in a non-speaking household. A couple of the kids had not been exposed to a, a speaking person for a couple of years. So they needed somebody that can communicate with them. So the kids on my case, I have four kids on my case. Um, four kids? Wow. wow. Yeah, there's, there may actually um, be another one added. We I don't know um, because two of my kids actually live with another one of their siblings in one of the foster placements. And I guess he really needs advocacy too, but there might actually be another CASA getting put on his case or 
I don't know. Yeah. So four kids and they, they hadn't been exposed to speaking people. So they're, they're barely able to talk. Two of them are getting better with speaking. One of them's in third grade and she's, she's doing pretty well, but they're all like below, way below their age range of where they should be developmentally. Um, and have, have you been able to make a connection with all of them? Well, the thing is, is that I am going to have my first, you mean like get in contact with them or make a. No, like an emotional connection or. Well, because no, not yet. Yeah, it's COVID. I'm, so you haven't been able yeah. to see them in person the way the CASA would normally do. I should be. Because um, I, I just I got vaccinated and uh, it sounds like they're loosening up the, the rules about being yes. able to visit. So I have a scheduled meeting with the the two kids that live with their sibling that I was saying um, on next Monday. So that's going to be my first time meeting them. I have one of the other siblings. Um, I went to her. Um, she had an award ceremony for school uh, a couple of days ago and I got to kind of sign to her and cause she knows sign like kind of, you know, and uh, get to know her a little bit, but not really. I just wanted to be there to show support even though she didn't know me yet. So no, I haven't gotten to really, to develop any kind of connection with the kids, but I have been diligently interviewing every single person. And the thing is, is that this case is wild and nobody communicates with anybody. And there's so many different placements and the kids have been moved around so much that. Yeah. You know, somebody was asking me uh, uh, like, well, what do you actually do? And yes, we are the voice of the kid in court and the voice of the kid in general, their advocate, but we're a little bit like a hub where we connect everybody who's not communicating right. with each other. Right. And exactly. Yeah. And usually the CASA knows the most because they're talking to everybody else or they're trying to anyway. Right. Right. Well, the thing I've noticed is that everybody else has factors that they have to kind of fit within, you know, financial or whoever they're working for. They have certain things that they need to be working on or paying attention to. And there isn't a single person on the case that is just there to, to make sure that the kids getting everything they need. I know the caseworkers are supposed to be, but they have so many people on their caseloads that they are just, yeah, they're overwhelmed. They, yeah. they couldn't possibly, you know, I think that the CASA is able to do more because number one, they're not paid. So nobody owns them. Right. And that also they get involved sometimes in many, many aspects of the kid's life as much as right. they can just to be able to understand what's going on right. and to make sure the kid's taken care of better. Yeah. It takes a really special kind of person, I think, to be a CASA. I, I really wish that I would have gotten to have one when I was a foster kid. I think it would have changed my life. Yeah. That was um, going to be my next question. Do you, is that true? You wish you had one, right? Oh yeah. I, I think that, like I, like I mentioned about the, the one person who uh, came along in my life that just showed me some sort of consistency and treated me like a human being like that stuck with me, you know? And that was just like some random, one of my mom's boyfriends who just was, happened to be nice to me, you know, and consistent. So if that could have that much of an impact, just having one person from childhood, just be like, I'm not paid to be here. I'm, I'm here because I care. And I, want to make sure that you are getting what you need. What do you need? Let's give you a voice. That is, it's insane. You know, it's powerful. And as a person who's becoming a therapist, I, I do know that the the impact that that kind of consistency from, you know, the earlier on, the better, because the impact will, is, is amazing. It will affect the relationships down the road. It will just that level of consistency from one party, because I mean, even the kids on my case have been moved around 
I mean, so many times because they have behavioral issues and they have, you know, it's a challenge to be able to communicate with them because they don't know how to speak and things like that. And so um, they've been moved so many times. The the, the girl, it's so sad. I, I um, As I was just starting to kind of interview everybody and I was hearing about how, you know, because she'd been moved several times before this, but she was finally with a placement she was doing great with, I guess. And the, the person was very hands-on and everybody was super excited that she was with this placement. And then as I'm trying to get a hold of her, I end up finding out that she's not there anymore and that she's with somebody else now. And it's just kind of tragic. The thing is, is like you're put into a, a house, you know, with these foster parents, they become your parents, you know, in, you know, at least basically. Yeah. And so to have them just ripped away so often, it's, it's damaging. And I think it's so amazing to have one person just be consistent through all of it. The, the CASA doesn't change for no matter where they move, no matter like if their caseworker changes, no matter... With all the other things that change, the CASA stays the same. And that's... Yeah, yeah. That I think that's really important, too. Actually, my little girl, I think, I hope, we're fingers crossed, she's about to be adopted. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and she, and she asked me, she said, but you're, you will, you're not going, are you? You're not going. Right. And I said, no, I'm not going. I will always be your CASA. And that's the beauty of, of this of this because you you don't have to cut off ties. You know, I think that caseworkers and things like that, I don't know what kind of obligations they have, but I don't think they, they stay in contact with the kids that they um, have on their cases at all. And so I think it's really cool that we, we can do that and can continue to have a relationship, you know, down the road and show up at their graduation and, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it, even if you take on other kids, right? Um, you know, and that's at one point I might have to explain that to her. But I, I will always be her casa. I'm not, you know, I'm here as long as I can be right. here. And I remember the look on her face when I told her that. And it was such relief. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it would be. I know it would be. Because when every other person, because the thing is, is when when you end up in the system, wh- what does that mean to you? It means your parents abandoned you. Your whole family abandoned you. Like, you've been, that's, that's what it feels like. You know, you've been abandoned by everybody. Like, you were not important enough for anybody that you knew in the world to try to, to, to do what it took to, to keep you from being taken to a foreign place in God knows what, you know, so. Right. But you figured out that you, that you are, are important. Yeah. Yeah. And I figured out that I could help other people. Well, yeah, but there's two things. Number one, sometime not too long ago, you figured out that you are important and that you can have the life that you want. Right. And you've been working very hard to get that, right? Right. Well, so I, I'm still working on my self-worth, to be honest. Um, it, it was more that I realized that, I mean, when, from my perspective as a kid, when I would deal with, um, counselors or therapists, I just felt like they, they could never possibly understand what I was going through. And so it just occurred to me that if I, and because of the fact that I just love people and want to help people out and just cares immensely, and it made me realize that those two things kind of almost give me an obligation to to try to to help people who who need it, you know, who need that perspective. Because I've been through a lot of different things, you know. There's a lot of things that a lot of people have never experienced in their lives, and so having that perspective to to bring to the table and be like, I know what you're going through. I can provide my insight, or just also just the fact that I know that they probably need somebody in their life, and most people don't even have that perspective. That's really more a motivator. I do have self-worth, but not not what I'd like it to be. I'm I'm still doing my own therapy and things like that. But Right. So you think that the desire to help other people 
has actually helped you heal yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that in the beginning, it wasn't so much about, you know, as a foster kid, you really do develop this idea that you aren't worth anything because of the the scars of being left behind by your family. Over and over and over and over again. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Abandonment issues run deep, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to break that, um, that belief, but, uh, I had always done really good in school. So that was kind of a given. I love school. And when it, it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do, but when I finally realized that I wanted to be a therapist, it just kind of changed things for me because I started seeing myself having a future and started seeing myself as a, as a human being that mattered. And it developed more and more, the more that I thought about the fact that I could actually help people. I think you can, I I think you're going to be great. You're going to be a great therapist. (laughs) You you. are, I think you're going to be great. Uh, You have the capacity. You obviously have the, the empathy and the ability to, uh, I mean, it's more than understanding. It's because you can identify with right. with the kids, right? Yeah, I um, and I, I know it's kind of a a weird way to to learn about a person is is this way. I think that it I think it kind of changes the lens that that you you would view me through. You know. I do want to ask you something else. So what is the one thing that people would never know about you unless you tell them? Well, now a days, it would be that, that I was a foster kid and that I came from the background that I did. But it's really interesting that you say that because I can see you and the people that are listening to this cannot. And you look like you walked out of a Jane Austen novel. <laughs> you such beautiful skin and and strawberry blonde hair, right? That's your color. And, well, my hair is naturally a little bit blonder, but yeah. yeah and and you the what you're how you're dressed and you're wearing a choker with a little jewel around <laughs> your neck and you just you you look like you walked out of a Jane Austen movie. It's just our novels, just fantastic. <laughs> it's really, really lovely. Um, I mean, I, I don't mean to focus on that, but it's it's kind of incongruous to hear what you're talking about and to see you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I, I know exactly what you mean. I've, I'm still trying to get used to being, because I'm also, um, I work full time on top of going to school full time now on top of the CASA thing, which is another full-time yeah, job now. Yeah, that's like three, three <laughs> so, big full-time jobs. Um, but I'm still trying to get used to presenting myself as a professional. I mean, I, I was never taught. I mean, I wasn't even taught how to do taxes. I was just having a conversation with somebody today about <laughs> how to do taxes because now I have enough of a paycheck that I have to. I think that that's like so many things that we as CASAs could make sure that these kids get is the things that people don't realize that they need or people don't have the frame of reference to, to even think, okay, a human being needs this, you know, the little things like how do you do taxes? How do you get your license? Because a lot of the kids in the system don't don't have somebody to give them that guidance or plug them in with the resources that they need or to at the very least tell them that they matter, you know, and that you care. I think that's the most important. I mean, I still have my uh, my growing and healing and learning to do. I'm at the very beginning of it all, but I'm just really grateful to to be in the position that I'm in and to know that I get to to make a change or to help somebody that needs it. I think those kids are going to be really lucky, Tina, really lucky. And I want to thank you for talking to me today. I, I appreciate the the invite to talk. I feel good. I haven't, 
don't think I've ever really just kind of laid out my story like that to anybody. So uh, sorry if it was kind of, I get very nervous in social situations like this, you know, where I'm on the spot. I'm great when it comes to advocating or helping somebody else or, you know, that kind of thing. But when it's, yeah, it's more difficult yeah. when it's you, right? Right. So thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to have met Tina Festa. She gives me hope and faith that, that, that people can get through. I mean, this happens over and over again in this podcast for me. But then when it happens again, I'm like, wow, it happened again. Tina, you are like, wow. And there you are turning it all around to help other kids in the system who are going through what you've been through. And you get them in a way that probably no one else ever could. Wow. Thanks. If you see something, say something. If you suspect that a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something say something. You might be saving a child's life. And if you're a kid in care who wants a casa, you can ask for one. In Los Angeles, go to casala.org. And anywhere else in the nation, go to nationalcasagal.org. And you can get one. I want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful music, Eferisto. To hear more of her music, go to Spotify and Instagram at Christina Aposto. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-A-P-O-S-T-O. I know you want to. Her stuff is really great. And thanks to my audio producer extraordinaire, Marcos Campito. I'm glad I found you. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, please rate us and hit subscribe. <laughs>